Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls mouth calls or diaphragms i like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I'll just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today hey everybody welcome to episode number seven of the hunting collective once again i'm ben o'brien and today i am joined by charles post i don't know what you really say about charles post other than he's not the normal hunter he's not the normal hunting industry professional he's a uc berkeley trained ecologist storyteller filmmaker an author scientist somebody who studies the natural world who studies animals and understands how they work and how we can all better them but he also goes hunting too uh, he's not he's not a complete rookie in the game he lives in Bozeman Montana he works with Sitka he works as a editor for the new magazine Modern Huntsman he's really becoming a pretty important voice in the hunting world from his perch as, as somebody who has a lot of science-based knowledge of the, of the outside world. So it was a fun conversation with Charles. He is enlightened in a lot of ways that I am not. So it was fun to talk to him about some of his philosophies and how he came up, about conservation, about conservation's history, about the outdoor recreation community and their relationship with hunters, and then just about how we think about our pursuits going outside. So hopefully this is another great conversation that you'll enjoy as a part of this grander scheme of the Hunting Collective. 
episode number seven on tap. Enjoy. Charles, how's it going? Hey, man? how's it going? Good. I always like to start this thing out by describing where I am or where we are or where you are, but in this case, I am in sunny Austin, Texas, and I imagine you are in less sunny Bozeman. Is that right? That's pretty close to it. It's spring actually showed up here probably about two weeks ago, so it's sunny. It's There's more sun, which is nice. It's been a cold, dark winter. Yeah. What What is that? I mean, there is barely any winter here. If it's 32 degrees in Austin, they shut the schools down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how are you enjoying the, the Montana winter? The Montana winter has been awesome. I really, I, I think I've fallen more in love with the season as it kind of marched on. It's the, They say it's one of the harshest winters in the last 20 years. So we've had quite a bit of snow. It started... F- really falling in September and it snowed two two or three days ago. So it's definitely still here. And everybody who grew up in, in Bozeman talks about these, these false springs, you know, you, you pull your, your shorts and your running shoes out and then you get a few days of sun and you, you kind of get tricked into thinking it's going to warm up and then it snows again for a week. So I'm trying not to uh, (laughs) look too far ahead down the calendar, but the the few days of sun and forty degree weather have been a really nice reprieve and um but yeah it's been awesome you I know mean, I grew up in Northern California so I haven't this is my yeah. first year living in a proper snowy snowy environment and uh, that was my yeah that was my next line of thought was you're an ecologist that grew up in California and this is your <laughs> and you're bearing the Montana winter yeah yeah it's um it's been different I you know one of the things that I love about California, Northern California in particular, is that I can go walk through most of the ecosystems and have a pretty good understanding of what I'm looking at, you know, the plants and animals and the geology. And, you know, I've just, I spent a lot of my life out there getting familiar with those places. Uh, so it's been really fun coming to, to Montana and not only having to, you know, learn a whole suite of new plants and animals, but also, yeah, just kind of seeing how the seasons progress. And I, I really, I really love the the really distinct seasons. You know, fall has a real distinct yeah. feeling, and winter certainly does. And spring, you get this kind of incredible proliferation of flowers, which you know, mostly new flowers. You know, for me, and and then summer is just you know a whole different experience because there's no ocean so you know you're trying to find a river or a lake to cool off in um but yeah no it's been it's been wonderful i mean one of the greatest things about montana is just how much wildlife there is um yeah that's for sure so i've been enjoying that i was reading a little bit about your background and and know of of your work a good bit and the first thing that came to my mind was what was it like to study ecology at uc berkeley because I've just I've been listening to a lot of different podcasts and hearing a lot about how you know what the tenor is now on these college campuses and how it has uh, changed a lot. But but studying what you did at the place that you did, I'd just be interested to know, as someone who's never been to that area of the world, what it's like to study what you studied at UC Berkeley. Yeah, you know UC Berkeley is a pretty pretty awesome place to to study ecology for a few reasons, and one is that. The, the university was founded as a, as a land-grant university. So, 
you know, some of the first kind of areas of, of focus were grazing and forestry and, and resource management. So there's definitely a, a pretty rich, pretty rich history of, 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 yeah, that type of research and some really, uh, celebrated people came out of Berkeley, like Joseph Grinnell and Luna Leopold out of Leopold's son. So it was, it was awesome because I was, I was being taught by people who had learned from some of the kind of forefathers of wildlife ecology and, and conservation, you know, today, or when I was there and, you know, the 2010, I finished undergraduate there in 2015, I finished graduate school there. It's changed a lot. You know, the barrier has a ton of people, but there's still that kind of undercurrent of of conservation, you know, history that's that, that's kind of peppered throughout some of the buildings and uh, some of the old time professors are still there. So, yeah, it was it was perfect for me. I, you know, I grew up just about an hour west of there, um, where there's a lot of open space. You know, you have uh, the Fairlawns National uh, Marine refuge that's like yeah right offshore you have point race national seashore and there's all this public land so it was a nice like juxtaposition of of kind of this semi-urban campus experience you know and then a lot of open space nearby um and i think you know generally the ecology department there is considered one of the top ones in the country especially amongst the public schools so one of the things i loved about it was that I was rubbing shoulders with with kids and peers from all over the world, um, and I was yeah. exposed to so many different perspectives and and topics, and you know, it was a a really transformative experience because you know you look at the courses that are available in any given semester, and you could learn about honeybees from one of the best honeybee experts, or wildlife biology from a you know a really celebrated wildlife biologist, and you know, and you could really go down these rabbit holes, which as a young kind of uh, hungry student, it's just there's nothing better than having options and and feeling like yeah. if you if you something sparks your curiosity, there's a place to go run with it. Um, yeah, and it was you know it was there that I fell in love with science and also realized that that you could make a living being a scientist you know that's you you think about like bring your parents to school day when you're in elementary school and i don't know about you but (laughs) there were no ecologist dads or moms that that came in um (laughs) so no no yeah so it's kind of one of those things where you know i think a a college or a good mentor a good professor they kind of impress upon you that idea that it is a career and i think what kind of hooked me was a certain presentation where this you know it was it was the first day of school and it was a fish ecology course and this professor named stephanie carlson walked in and she was probably in her early 30s at the time and she was just so passionate so energetic so just relatable you know, sometimes there's there's a, there's a benefit to being that kind of old seasoned scientist, and there's something to be said for those young kind of yeah energetic scientists. And and she was she was the latter, and she showed us some pictures of of her graduate research where she was with a bunch of young people in Alaska studying salmon, and she explained how you can live at research stations and conduct this research, and you know, kind of the light bulb went off and I realized that you could actually make a career basically just walking around the woods or, 
you know, any ecosystem with a clipboard and binoculars and and study these places and and make a living out of it. So I think yeah. Berkeley, yeah, that, it planted that seed. So um, yeah, I'll be your professional hunter without any <laughs> without any weaponry. Yeah, I mean, our yeah, our tools, yeah, like a pencil and binoculars and some right in the rain notebooks. Um, yeah, one of the major like we, I know you go through as many years studying as you as you did there um what are the major philosophies that you came out of of that with when it in regards to wildlife and you know are and cohabitation and some of the things you know we talk about in the hunting world were there philosophies that you carried out of there that have that have really stuck with you or that that you think people should should know from from that time yeah i think you know as an undergrad i think i kind of fell in love with, with, with science. And then as a graduate student at UC Berkeley, working with a lot of the same professors, I really developed kind of the, the staples for being a good scientist. And, and when you talk about philosophy, one of the things that my graduate advisor, her name's uh, Dr. Mary Power, uh, she impressed you know upon the importance of collecting notes and making observations. And growing up you know surfing and and kind of spending time outside it it kind of added another layer to that experience because she taught us and i came to realize that if you really want to be a good ecologist you need to master the 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 craft of of observing and taking notes and noticing trends and then figuring out ways to put numbers to those observations so you can use math to predict or understand you know, more about them. And for a few years, as a, when I was working as a, as a field scientist in a graduate school, I mean, we're taking notes every day throughout the day. And it's something that I think has really shaped the way I see the world today and shaped a lot of the ways that I approach, you know, storytelling or, or different topics and conservation in the outdoors, because so often people qualify your time outside by miles hiked days spent camping or you know distance climbed or speed you know over which you covered ground and in science the metric of of success is how well you observe a place how well you understand a place and i think there's just such a huge difference between being a speed hiker or you know climbing up a mountain really quickly and really knowing that place, knowing the rhythms of the place, understanding the patterns and the discrepancies that make a place unique. So I think that philosophy is really just to be an observer. And I learned that early on, and I think that's become kind of a North Star of sorts as I've kind of moved along in time. Oh, that's interesting. I, I find that, you know, I don't often go outside with a clipboard um, and a pen or anything like that but sometimes i wish i did in fact a lot of times i wish i did because there's just things that you see that maybe you don't understand even in the moment that that strike you as odd or strike you as compelling that you may if you're hunting you may walk right past that scene or that that animal or that you know whatever's happening there that that you would you may look further into uh as an ecologist but as a really anybody going outside or even as a hunter you walk right past because you're tunnel focused on on your end goal um is there you know as you become we'll get into 
a little bit of your your hunting life later and how and kind of how things have gone recently but have you any advice for any for for hunters or folks that might be listening anybody on how to really nail down your observations in the outside world and make them connect yeah i mean one of the things when i was in grad school um i was teaching a field biology course for a few years and one of the things that i always do with my students most of them were freshmen or sophomores uh, a lot of them were pre-med so they hadn't actually uh you know taken an ecology course this is generally their first time really getting out in the field and what i would always do is bring them out into a you know a wild setting or you know somewhere kind of away from traffic and you know we'd go on a hike or go out to some of the regional parks up, up in the berkeley hills and i would just kind of put them out there and say sit down for 15 minutes and just listen just sit against a tree and just observe and it's amazing how much you can glean from a place by just actually shutting off the outside world and focusing on what you hear and what you see and those little subtleties. And to see them come back, we'd sit in a circle and everybody kind of share their observation. I think when you hear 15 people's unique observations about one place, you start to realize how much you miss when you're running through a place or just focused on one thing, whether it's you're bird watching or you're looking for sheds or you're looking for elk. You know, you miss so many other little bits and pieces that make up the ecosystem. And I think for, you know, hunters or, you know, anybody listening, you know, one of the things that I, that maybe they already do, but what I would suggest is, you know, go to the places that you love and bring a pair of binoculars and and really just sit and look for everything but elk or look for everything but deer and start to piece together the kind of missing threads that make that place that you love so much and and are drawn to, you know, all the more relatable. And, you know, what my advisor uh, told me, Mary Power, is that, you know, in 30 years of observing a place, you can really start to understand how it changes or how it, how it moves through time, through the seasons. And, you know, what supports that idea is that if you look at all the science papers out there, the ones that are really informing us about how our planet's changing or how a place has changed from development or from some sort of policy or management are these 10, 20, 30-year data sets. You know, you're not going to... There's there's no science papers out there that are changing the way we understand the world with two years of data or three years of data. You know, these are 10, 20, 30, 40 decade-long data sets. And when you have that much data, then you can really start to see something clearly. And I think just applying, you know, that simple, you know, act of observing regularly over time just will help you become more familiar with the place and, you know, will allow you to better understand how animals are changing or trails are changing or how vegetation is changing, which might then inform the way that you move about the land or, or pursue certain animals or, or just kind of, you know, how you experience that place. Yeah. Um, you know, and binoculars, obviously a lot of, you know, most hunters have a good pair of binoculars, but another thing that 
<laughs> that I've done, which is super nerdy and probably people will laugh at when they hear me say this out loud, but I'm totally up for it, um, is, you know, get like a little Zoom mic, you know, just like a little recorder, plug in your headphones and turn up the volume and go out in the woods and just turn up the volume. And you can hear so much that you never would have heard because our ears just don't pick it up. You know, the super high and the super low sounds that our ears can't, you know, literally are not able to pick up, you will hear. And it just adds this incredibly rich kind of layer to a place. Um, yeah, yeah people might make fun of you for walking around the forest with a headphones <laughs> and a little recorder. But Listen, man. Yeah. You're but describing it's... very, very hippie ideas here. Sit around <laughs> in a circle and describe, <laughs> describe what you see and hold up a recorder. But I, I would be totally down for that. And a and good it's... example of that is sitting in a turkey blind in Florida a couple of days ago. Well, we had a couple of rookie hunters in there, and um, they they kind of wouldn't shut up the whole time. And I had to tell them, hey, listen, and here's what to listen for as a turkey hunter. Listen for an owl, listen for a crow, and listen for thunder. I mean, these are things that all might end in a turkey gobble. And even just that small uh, realization to them that if you listen, you might not hear a gobble every time, but you might understand what what evokes a gobble or what precedes one or what follows one and understand what it all means a little bit more or just observing a hen with a lone hen walking around a food plot can tell you a lot about turkeys and their mannerisms um, absolutely so, yeah you're exactly right and that that was just a bunch of hunters i wonder how much i would know about crow behavior or owl behavior in the turkey woods if it wasn't for turkeys but i certainly know as much as, as anybody would know about how they relate to turkeys maybe not the entire ecosystem but but it's a start yeah, and I think that's, you know, so much of it. There's a there's a book that really inspired me called The Great Animal Orchestra by a guy named Bernie Krause. Highly recommend it. And it's all about the ecology of sound. And what he argues, which I believe and I think the science community at large is, is accepting, is that we can go do a walk through a forest with a bunch of biologists, right? And, you know, you have a bird biologist and a tree biologist and, you know, somebody who's a specialist on mammals and we can get our clipboards and make our observations and, and do our best to do a survey of the wildlife and the vegetative uh, community. And we'll come back and collect that data. You can then go through that same ecosystem with precise audio equipment and you will pick up so much more than our eyes ever will. So what he presents in this book is this idea that for example, a case study he uses is that, you know, sometimes people will come into a forest and say, we're going to do selective logging. We're going to pull 15 trees out of this place and it's not going to have any impact. We'll be super sensitive. We'll do it in this way and that way to ensure that, you know, that the, the community at large is, is protected. And he has amazing before and after audio data. You know, if you look at a, an acoustic uh, sonograph, and you can see all the different calls of all the different birds. You can actually, visually, there might be no difference, but you look at that that soundscape, and there's a really distinct difference. Um, so it's kind of interesting because, you know, our eyes only tell us so much, but like you're saying, our ears are such a big part of that as well. You know, there's a lot of things you'll never, you'll never see, but you'll hear. And uh, he points out, you know, maybe we should listen more closely um, if we really hope Absolutely. to understand how these ecosystems are changing or how we're affecting them. 
but yeah. uh, well, it's a pretty cool book. That's a great point. We'll, we'll check that out. Um, as you were talking, I was just thinking about your point about 30 years of data really having a totalitarian, like a total effect on how we think. Like we're not, we can't really make any decisions or assumptions about how we affect the natural world in such a short time. And and you think about co- the idea of conservation in America, it's not that old. I mean, it's three times 30 maybe, um, or a little bit more than that. I mean, at the turn of the century, we really started to see those ideas codifying and, and becoming a thing. You, you know, what's your idea of, of our model of conservation? And it's relatively young in the grand scheme of the natural world. And as an ecologist, do you look at the act differently or the plan differently or the way that we have set this all up in North America, or at least in in, in the States? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, one of the recurring thoughts I have about the North American model and, and conservation in general is that we have to think about the landscape of conservation and the currency of conservation. And for better or for worse, if you're a scientist, your currency is publishing a paper. And a lot of papers rely on data sets that are collected over a PhD or a master's degree or over a tenure, which, you know, maybe you work for a certain department for eight or 10 years. Um, So the way that we're managing wildlife are oftentimes informed by these shorter data sets, which in some cases is the best we can do. But I think it's important to, to just keep in mind that if we're looking at a place and over the course of 10 years, we might be missing a lot. And especially now with the way our, you know, planets changing from development and different kind of human influence pressures, we can't forget that 20 years from now is going to be very different than 20 years ago. And instead of thinking about conservation or goals in a static sense, you know, this is our goal. And once we accomplish it, we're good. You know, we need to, I think, look at conservation metrics in a very plastic way. You know, we need to look at them as benchmarks that have a plus or a minus, like a standard deviation, right? Like there's room to wiggle. Because the second we wrap our hearts and minds around a, a very static, singular goal, we basically lose sight of the fact that ecosystems change in time. They're constantly changing, whether it's succession or whether it's humans, you know, like a, a mountain range could be free of Jeep roads today. And in two years, there's going to be a Jeep road going through it. And that's going to totally change the way wildlife move about the land and the way that our impact exists or doesn't exist on the land. So I think one of the things to consider, you know, when we talk about wildlife or we talk about um, bag limits or or seasons is that 10 years from now is going to be very different than today. And I think it's just, yeah, it's important to to not only plan ahead and, and realize there's some unknown, but also realize that conservation exists on a metric of 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 good and could be better you know and i think there's always room to improve um and also that conservation people will talk about conservation in north america or conservation in canada or conservation in africa conservation exists in my opinion 
on a specific place in a specific time. And oftentimes they're not comparable to one another. You know, Texas conservations is inherently different than Idaho. Idaho is different than Alberta. Alberta is different than Kenya. Kenya is different than Zimbabwe. So you see these headlines or some of these kind of, uh, you know, kind of far reaching assumptions or claims. And I think it just takes away from the beauty of science, right? Like, or a, or a, a wildlife manager, you know, these people are experts in their population and their park and their region and their part of the state. Um, and the realities on the ground are all very different. So, you know, I think you can have these overarching models of conservation, but I think it's really important to consider that, you know, Eastern Montana is very different than Western Montana. Um, yeah. And wildlife and conservation success should be looked at through that particular lens. Yeah, I think that's important. And, and you know, in, in our model conservation, that's what they say, states control the wildlife and, and science controls the quotas and how we how we manage those things, which, which always made a lot of sense to me. And I think inside of that model, the federal government plays a pretty good pretty good role. One, to, to manage the funds that come from some of the resources that we put into it, but then also to manage our public lands and make sure those places are there for everybody um, in a way that, that we know only they can. So that's those are those are good points. Do you imagine the term conservation will shift over time? I mean, really, a good example I think is probably the wild turkey or even the white-tailed deer. I mean, the NWTF kind of came of age, National Wild Turkey Federation came of age to, to save the turkey and save its habitat. And I think we could probably all agree that the turkey is fairly saved. <laughs> they're they're everywhere. Uh, same with the white-tailed deer. The white-tailed deer is it needed saving at some point. Now, probably not so much. Uh, probably more <laughs> needs managing in the overall yeah. sense. Yeah. What do you imagine that those those things change over time, and, and maybe at some point in this in this country, white-tailed deer will again be um, in need of of saving, or turkeys will be in need of saving, but they aren't currently. So, how do you manage those ideas as they flow through time? It's a great question. I mean, one of the things that you know I think about is that. There's never been more white-tailed deer than there are today. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one is a lack of predators. One is the fact that they're a super flexible animal that can take advantage of, you know, s- suburban or semi-urban environments. Um, you know, so I think about white-tailed deer and I think about the fact that they're kicking out mule deer in some systems. So when d- when do we get to a point where managers are forced to recognize that white-tailed deer might be almost an invasive species where they're moving into a, a, a historically mule deer ecosystem and kicking them out just because we've kind of given them a leg up and a chance to do that. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, white-tailed deer, we can manage them, conserve them, but I think there's a difference between managing for a species and managing for the ecosystem. And... I think conservation hopefully will move more towards managing the ecosystem. You know, obviously these these deer and turkey and elk are what bring a lot of people out into nature to hunt them and pursue them and watch them and photograph them. But there's a fine line between managing for one species and managing for an ecosystem. And I think 
you know, with, you know, we live in a time right now, it's the sixth mass extinction, but, you know, animals are going extinct 100 to 1,000 times faster than they would be naturally without humans. And we're losing, you know, species across North America. You know, the monarch butterfly, you know, that's imperiled. Mm. There's obviously not a community of diehard monarch stewards like there are for folks who are passionate <laughs> about white-tailed deer. But yeah. maybe that should be a metric for white-tailed deer habitat. You know, if we want a healthy ecosystem to support healthy deer, we should be thinking about, you know, the fish and the waterways and the, the butterflies yeah. and the songbirds. And if we yeah. only manage white-tailed deer, they might get to a point where they're overgrazing riparian corridors, which doesn't help songbirds and insects that need those habitats to thrive. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Um, yeah. 
you know? So I think the initial conservation mindset was like, let's save the white-tailed deer because they're being extirpated. Let's, you know, save grizzly bears because they're being extirpated. Let's save bighorn sheep because they're, you know, being extirpated. And I think today, I think we've done a pretty good job of establishing some of those seed populations and, and at least stabilizing some of the strongholds. Um, but the kind of animals on the periphery, plants and animals on the periphery that don't have the, the you know, monarch butterfly foundation or the uh, lazuli bunting foundation, <laughs> you know, they need some love too. So I think that you need more foundations. Approach. You're telling me we need more foundations? As many, <laughs> as many wildlife foundations as, as oh, possible? Oh, gosh. It would, I mean, selfishly, I think it'd be amazing if there were little communities of people passionate about, you know, uh, all the kind of less charismatic flora and fauna. I mean, and there are, you know, I mean, American kestrels, they're in decline and there's, yeah. I personally know people who are totally passionate about American kestrels building nest well, boxes. Like the boring, the boring animal society of America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the boring ad- animals to the masses. But you know, one of the things I always tell people is that, and this, you know, I would argue this is, this is true behind almost every species, plant or animal, there is a grad student, an undergrad, a scientist, uh, a biologist, somebody out there who's dedicated their life and so much of their time to the preservation of that organism, which yeah. gives me a lot of hope, you know, because when I was in grad school, I would go to a seminar, go have lunch with folks, and you'd sit down next to a kid who was obsessed about this certain species of algae, and you'd sit next to a girl who was obsessed with this certain type of alpine flower and you know while there might not be a foundation for that alpine flower there's definitely somebody who's pouring their you know heart and soul into that that species preservation which is a pretty cool thing yeah no that that paints a pretty good picture pretty good tapestry of a bunch of people that care about wildlife and want it to thrive in many different ways um and this goes back to i I had shane mahoney on the podcast here a couple weeks ago and part of our conversation was, you know, what can hunters do better to to represent what the, what they feel? And one of his points was we can better resent, represent our caring for wildlife in its totality. The things the things that we don't hunt, uh, the things that we don't we don't see ourselves as necessarily stewards of, um, we can represent that in a way, much to what you're saying, that makes sense uh, across the board. And just says we care about nature and not just about the well-being of the things that we kill and eat. Um, and and at some level worship, you know, we worship elk and deer uh, and not so much other things. And I and you even see that in the hunting world. You see that um, anti-hunters or non-hunters are okay with seeing a duck get shot in the face a lot of times, but they're not, or a turkey, but they're not so okay with watching an elk get shot and die. And so you just see kind of. Everybody has their own biases, but uh, hunters, as, as folks that are consumptive users of wildlife, certainly could do better at, at caring about everything rather than just what we what we chase around. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know, two points come to mind, and and one is that these animals that hunters might identify with, whether it's duck or turkey or bighorn or uh, or elk, those animals exist because the ecosystem exists. And the ecosystem yeah. exists because the butterflies pollinate the plants and the birds pollinate the plants and the Clark's nutcracker disperses the seeds that feed the bear, you know, and we can't without, if there's not a healthy ecosystem, the, the species that we love and pursue won't thrive. 
So I yeah. think it's whether or not we really have a personal relationship or affinity to a butterfly or, you know, to a squirrel that bury a lot of acorns that feed a lot of whitetail, um, you know, that grow up in the trees and feed the forest. If with, without that yeah. squirrel dispersing the acorns, we're not going to have healthy oak forests that feed healthy deer populations. Yeah, and there's, there's been... There's been anti-hunters or, you know, animal rights activists in the past going all the way back into the 60s that say conservation is an idea created to, you know, pull the wool over everybody's eyes for hunters. You know, it's it's an, it's an a term that allows us to, to be altruistic in, in a sense, but also we're just doing it for our own personal gain. So we're only being, we're only saving elk so we can kill them. Um, and a lot of these animal rights activists, even going back to the, Guys like Joseph Wood Kurtz back in um, in the 60s, in the in the height of the the beginning of the HSUS, talking about animal rights being the way and conservation being a lie, and I think that I think that goes back to what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think you know the historical the historical kind of uh, divide and the polarization of that of that narrative, I think, is. You know, I, oftentimes I think people fail to 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 remember that a lot of those early Boone and Crockett club members, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, they weren't perfect. You can read their history books, and there's probably some things that, you know, maybe they could have done better. But they also they set the stage for conservation to succeed. You know, I mean, he talked about coming out to Montana and having trouble finding a bison to hunt. You know, and then he had obviously one of the biggest influences in conservation you know, into the future. And I think there's something to be said for people who dedicate their time and energy to wildlife, whether they're non-hunters, anti-hunters, or hunters. You know, I think, yeah. um, you know, there's one thing to buy a hunting license and know that some of that money goes into the Pittman-Robinson, you know, fund, and you know, by way of the act. But there's another thing to to do that, but then also to spend your time planting trees or or helping yeah. restore a, a riparian ecosystem or you know doing a Christmas bird count that informs the way that we understand songbirds. There's I think there's degrees to which we can be conservationists. There's the there's the kind of initial entry uh, you know membership of of buying a tag and having some of that money go into conservation. But I think there's there's a lot of other ways to to get involved and to have a hand in, in writing the future of America's conservation. Um, and I think one of the things yeah. that non-hunters and anti-hunters maybe don't, haven't been exposed to or haven't thought of is that a lot of hunters, you know, don't enjoy watching something die. You know, like I grew up hunting yeah. birds mostly, but I, I've vivid memories of being sad about that and then mm. eating the food and realizing that to eat meat, something has to die. And that was a choice that I made and it's not something I take lightly and it's not something that happens with, you know, with this kind of uh, neglect of, of, of realizing that, you know, that this is a life and death situation for these animals. Um, you know, the difference between a white-tailed deer dying and, you know, a desert bighorn are very different, right? White-tailed deer are incredibly abundant, very much not under threat. You know, there are places where desert bighorn are, are, are hanging on and kind of rebounding. 
And, you know, I just shot a film with, with Ben Masters and Adam Foss. I'm sure you, you know both of those guys. Um, oh, yeah. On Desert Bighorn Sheep down in Texas, uh, Sitka supported it, and Texas Parks and Wildlife had a big play in it. And it's a film about a bunch of people, many of whom probably identify as hunters, spending their, their time, money, and energy getting bighorn sheep back onto these mountains that used to support healthy populations and don't anymore. And most of them will never have a chance to hunt bighorn sheep, but they have the, the hat, you know, the wild sheep foundation hat and they, they are card carrying bighorn enthusiasts, but they're not doing it to put one on the wall. They're doing it because they want to see one hop out of that horse trailer and, you know, run up into the mountains and yeah, and that's it, absolutely. you know. And I think it's an it's an important thing to rem, to remind people is that it's called hunting, not killing. <laughs> you know, like there's so many days we go hunt and we we just watch. You know, most of my dad used mice, to say that when we when we didn't kill something because I always thought that was like, well, does that mean we suck <laughs> as hunters? Yeah, Are we not killing, we suck. But that that's an idea that that certainly is worth going over because it's it's something that it goes to this whole conversation. If you're not killing something did you succeed and how did you succeed you know if you've never killed if you're could you be a uh, a conservationist and a sheep hunter if you've never killed one in your entire life and maybe stand to never do so i think you can be absolutely and i mean i was talking with with um one of the biologists down there and he told me a story about uh, a gentleman who who bought the tag to go hunt one of these sheep and and never pulled the trigger and that was fine. He just, he, it, for whatever reason, didn't feel right. And he just, just didn't happen. And he was happy as can be, you know, he walked off that mountain and he had succeeded. You know, he'd gotten up there and gotten a chance to have this once in a lifetime opportunity. And I mean, I think back on my hunting season last year and I mean, some of the best moments of my life were just sitting with my fiance, uh, you know, watching elk just rip by and <laughs> looking at her and looking at, you know, her looking at me and just this kind of like out of body experience. And, and that was it, you know, just basically yeah. what I used to do as an ecologist, which was go sit in the woods for months and years on end and watch animals, which is, yeah. that's why I do it. Huh. So, well, I mean, I think, yeah, you get, you go back to some of the things that we do in hunting to kind of boil down all these ideas and make them easy into hashtags or bullet points or, you know, campaign slogans or whatever they need to be for people to understand them. And a couple of those, there's one start making the rounds now called Huntervationist, and there's the other one is Hunting is Conservation. Those are the two I've seen recently that kind of irk me a little bit. And I think maybe just because that simplifies, makes it simple. Like, to go hunting is to be a conservationist. No, it's not. Not at all. Um, hunting is hunting, and conservation is conservation. Of course, you know, you know well know that hunting is a tool of conservation in a lot of ways, but they aren't one and the same. And to, to, to try to draw that line just just seems a bit lazy to me and oversimplifying what what is complicated so it's it's nice to hear that there are folks especially in texas that that are doing those things the right way yeah i think it's a great point i mean it's it's just like you know saying that because you pay your taxes you're pro highways and pro war and pro bridge restoration and reinforcement yeah i mean it's you know i think it's by default, you are putting money into that in that bucket. But to your point, you know, there's there's definitely, and I and I think the distinction is important because it helps people realize that there there is more to do, right? Like 
you can hunt and you can contribute you know a, some some funds uh, into conservation by buying your tags and and all the taxes that are out there but there's also a rich community of people who are dedicated like like I said who are dedicating their time and, and energy into conservation and, and some of them hunt and some of them don't and that's fine but the 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 common passion is just for is for wildlife and you know the outdoors and it's something I you know it's you you point out that it's a it's a f- phenomena that's happening in the hunting world it's also happening in the outdoor world you know I spent a lot of time and a lot of the projects and people I engage with are just in the kind of traditional outdoor space and there's you know I have the same kind of feelings that you shared about the outdoor world you know just because you hike the PCT or or went camping in Alaska or you know enjoy bears ears doesn't mean that you're a conservationist or doesn't mean that you are an informed person that really can add much to the conservation narrative besides the fact that you hiked there once or camped there twice or you know i think there's just such a difference between hiking in a place and and camping in a place or hunting in a place and actually understanding the ecological rhythms of a place and the threats and the history the conservation history and the constituents you know from a social perspective and all and the kind of the ecosystem at large. I mean, there's just, it's such a yeah. dynamic that's that conversation that gives me, thing. That conversation gives me a lot of energy. Like even when you're hearing you talk about that, because I think just from an idea standpoint, I I see a lot of hunters who, who just, they're paying a tax, right? That it, it's, it's voluntary by way of going in and purchasing a hunting license. But if you want to go hunting, it's involuntary. If you want to legally hunt, you have to buy a license, right? You, you have to purchase unless you borrow from someone, you have to purchase a firearm or, or archery tackle. So at some level, it's a requirement that our system is set up that you pay this tax into Pittman-Robertson or into um, into the state wildlife agencies. It's not voluntary. They don't ask you when you buy a rifle, would you like to pay 11% excise tax or would you like to sit, leave that off? Like you, you purchase it and you pay it. I think there is in hunting a more comfortable there's a more comfortable subset of people that are like, yes, I know it costs more money to hunt, and I know that that this is why, because it does go into conservation. Um, if you flip that over to the outdoor rec community, I think there's, la- there's less that, because the Outdoor Industry Association fights against a backpack tax that would, would impose some sort of uh, excise tax on, on goods sold for climbing or hiking or camping or whatever. And... Uh, I don't know if there just isn't a history of that in that world or it just uh, – I think there's, to your point, more people that like to say they're conservationists because it's trending and it feels good and it's um, emotionally satisfying to say you're a conservationist when they're really not doing anything. Um, have you seen that parallel? I mean, hunters are willing to pay, but at some level, a lot of them don't even know what they're paying. Um, and it seems like the outdoor space maybe is a little less willing to go down that road, but more willing to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I think I think without saying anything too contentious, you know, I think the outdoor industry looks maybe at hunters in a, in a light, in a certain light, because we're in their eyes, they think we're taking something from the outdoors. We're taking an animal from the outdoors. We're harvesting. I think they generally, this is maybe a gross overstatement, but think of their impacts as benign. 
So they kind of, I think maybe there's the stigma of like, oh, we're actually not doing anything bad. So therefore we're kind of, you know, our hands are clean. But, you know, you can, you can look at Yosemite or any of these really heavily trafficked parks and just the impact on trails and and littering and just visitation, you know, I mean, maybe we should be paying more. Maybe if you're uh, just recreating in some of these really highly trafficked parks, you should be paying more because the net impact on the ecosystem is, is so tremendous and growing. You know, I think um, if hunters had a choice to pay that tax, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I would bet a lot of people would opt to not pay the conservation, uh, you know, that 11% that you mentioned. Um, That'd be a nice experiment to do. That would be, that would be an experiment that I would like to see if you, cause I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of people who know what Pittman Robertson might be, but I don't think they know what it really is and what it really does. Cause it's not, when you buy a hunting license, it's not written on your, uh, in your booklet, what, where all your money goes. And when you purchase a firearm, it's not on your receipt or that 11% excise tax and how it's levied and where it ends up. It's not, there's no outward education for the hunting community about these things. So a lot of folks go, go their whole life without ever knowing about it. And that's, it's a shame in one way, but in another way, it's created this disconnection from generational disconnect from what's actually happening and what was enacted in the thirties. So you're right. I, I'd, I'd be interested to see how many hunters would opt to pay that 11% excise tax or opt to pay that extra tag fees that, that are going back to the States. I mean, I would, I'd, I'd be interested in that. I don't know. Yeah. And I think, you know, take it a step further, you know, I took, I got my bow hunting license last year and we, you know, in Montana, we take a, a, a bow hunting specific field course and, you know, they have a portion of the course is on, you know, uh, blood trails and a portion of the course is on being bear safe and pepper spray and how to move safely, you know, in bear country. I mean, I think both rifle and archery hunters would benefit tremendously from a portion of that course being a natural history course, you know, and maybe it's Mm -hmm. specific to the state or the region, but I mean, I'd argue that's, that's a great entry point to have a, a more informed conservation minded group of hunters, you know, to, to make that part of the education, you know, you're not just hunting a, a particular animal, particular species, but, you're taking part in this activity that you know affects an ecosystem and, and here's kind of the, the the building blocks to that ecosystem um, and just like the outdoor industry I mean it's the same you know one of the 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 thoughts that c- comes to my mind when I you know go to outdoor retailers is I, I walk through these these conference halls filled with hundreds of outdoor people you know outdoor industry folks and you know, you wonder how many of them could list off four bird species that live, you know, in the in the mountain range they just hiked, you know, or or four tree species. And not that you need to, you know, have a, a laundry list of the plants and animals in your space, but, you know, how do we, I guess the question that I chew on often is how do we push the hunting and outdoor industry to a place where we start to value that that conservation and that natural history kind of element. Yeah. You know, it's not in the currency for the outdoor industry because they're more interested in how high the mountain was or how difficult the climbing route was. Um, 
And I don't know, but it's, I think that's, therein lies the difference between somebody who recreates outdoors and, you know, my grandfather who was a hunter, but he was also a a Harvard trained forester in Minnesota in the North Woods. And he took my dad deer hunting his whole childhood. My dad never shot a deer because he just sat on a stump and just basically my grandpa would just go walk around in the woods and then come pick my dad up, you know, eight hours later. (laughs) (laughs) But... Oh, that's interesting because I always break it down by hunters being consumptive users and recreationalists being non-consumptive, right? We're we're going out into the woods and taking something we didn't put there, right? And normally, folks in the outdoor rec community aren't doing that. They're not going out and taking big chunks of rock home with them or they're not going out and cutting trees down. They're just going out and enjoying that space. And yes, they have an effect, but um, it's not as a direct effect. And I think maybe I'm wrong in the in those two descriptions. I mean, who cares if you're you know, killing a deer or not, uh, or who cares where you camp or whatever? I think what we should probably more judge it by is what is your overall effect on on the wild world and and nature, and then how do you manage that? You know, what's your overall effect, campers? What's your overall effect, hunters? And then how do you manage that effect, and how do you contribute to you know? the positive a positive look upon that uh, i think is important and and everybody's consuming something in some way and affecting something in some way but um are both of those groups having the same positive effect at the end of the day yeah i think you bring up a great point you know i think about white-tailed deer again you know in in a lot of places if you were somebody looking to have a positive effect on an ecosystem with an overabundance of white-tailed deer, one of the best things you could do is harvest a white-tailed deer. Yeah. Conversely, one of the best things you can do if you're hiking in Yosemite is to stay on the trail because so many people for an Instagram photo or for whatever reason are off trail, you know, further marginalizing sensitive habitat. And I think the, the net gains of harvesting that white-tailed deer in a place like Texas or staying on trail, you know, th- I, I think they're very similar in my eyes, right? Like you're, you're pushing the needle in a, towards a place of, of conservation and stewardship and mindfulness, you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, non-hunters might not think about the benefits of hunting certain animals, certain populations, and also non-hunters might not think about the net effect of poaching a campsite next to a lake and throwing your you know your kitchen scraps into a high alpine lake because they probably don't realize that those high alpine lakes are very biologically poor like there's not a lot of organisms that break down a piece of bread or a or a piece of chicken so it just sits in the lake they call them oligotrophic nutrient poor you know they probably don't realize that's that's a bad thing or people probably don't realize that you know, going to the bathroom on the side of a trail in goat country or sheep countries, actually probably not the best thing because those animals come down for the salt and they end up disturbing the, you know, the, the soil next to these trails. And over time it compounds and can be actually have pretty dramatic effects. Or I can just bring these animals into places where potential conflict with humans is greater. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, outdoor rec users and, I can't say that I go camping a lot or go, you know, necessarily go hiking a ton in places where I'm not hunting. I do, but it's mostly around my house here in Texas. 
you know, I know hunters, there's the build-in model, right? We pay, we pay, we pay, we pay. And that's always how we talk about it. Everything's Everything costs more because it's it's a more serious activity. Is there the same thing in outdoor recreation? Do you feel like when people are camping or hiking, they're, they're, they're paying enough, um, whether it's a park fee or, you know, parking lot fee or whatever it might be is there is there the same that's a, it's a legitimate question i don't really have a point i'm just i just i'm not as educated in that yeah i mean i th- i think one of the greatest things that's preventing public land managers whether it's the forest service the blm or national park service from accomplishing their conservation goals is funding mm-hmm. and you know every president and the politicians that come with them have their pros and cons but one of the things that's been a recurring theme with organizations like the blm is they don't have the funds to do what they need to do so you look at blm you know public land and it's you can just camp wherever you want if there's a shortage of resources for the agency to manage our public lands well and it's a financial shortage but yet places like the Eastern Sierra in California, thousands of people are camping in every day for free. I mean, yeah, it's romantic and it sounds great, but they're also having to close BLM campgrounds around Zion National Park because they're being used to to such an extent that the ecosystem is being degraded. So it just doesn't seem to be the most uh, responsible approach. You know, let people do something for free and then we eventually close it in time because it's being destroyed because so many people are using it for free and the agency and the managers tasked with protecting and stewarding our natural resources can't do their job because they don't have enough money you know and some of that's obviously just the political kind of landscape and where money is moved around but i think people have so much respect and there's americans at least in the outdoor and the hunting industry, I think, are generally proud of their public land and proud of the places we get to go play and, and recreate. But again, it's, you know, as more and more of us fall in love with these places, the more stress there is on these places. And yeah. I would be an advocate for charging more at entry fees and, and even charging a dollar at BLM, you know, campsites. I mean, it adds yeah. up. Um, and I think... Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 it makes sense. You know, these are not these ecosystems can't manage themselves. And whether we want to believe that you know, wilderness areas are completely devoid of of human fingerprints is just not true. You know, whether it's it's the way that we're influencing the climate or wildfires that some guy might start with a cigarette on the side of a highway that burn into our wilderness areas. I mean, even if you're 30 miles from a road, which I think is about as remote as it gets in the lower 48, there's still signatures of man all over the place. Oh, yeah. Um, So I think with that in mind, you know, we should be tasked with, you know, kind of an entry fee to help protect these places. Yeah, that's the one difference. I think where, and I'm sure you're like I am, because I do um, live in a world where, I, I see a lot of stuff in the outdoor community and then I, I see a lot of stuff in the hunting community and I, and I, I see how similar the mindsets are. Um, and then I see how dissimilarly the outward, um, talking points are 
and I, I would say like to bring them close together, I think that's one thing you could do from an outdoor rec perspective is, is be willing to pay more and ask, ask to pay more. I mean, I think hunters do that in a lot of, a lot of aspects, um, ask to pay more for your impact and understand and try to understand really what it is and then be willing to pay more to go do, which I think hunters, um, are in most respects and i think for hunters the way to get closer to the outdoor rec space is to be a little bit more environmentally conscious and be understanding of uh, what we were talking about earlier the totality of the environment and what all of it means together and that hunting is a crucial part but it's only one part Um, and i think if you could kind of convince both communities that those two things to shift those two ideologies a little bit you push them together they find that there's not that much of a difference I don't. I don't think there really is, especially from the folks that I've talked to um, in the outdoors. I totally. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think recreation has an impact, and I think it's important for the community to see that and work towards reducing that impact. You know, and I think, like we talked about earlier, I think hunters should be reminded that just because you put money into the bucket in an involuntary way doesn't mean you're a conservationist, that there's a lot of ways to legitimize that claim. And I think creating a framework for the average outdoor recreation person to put money in a bucket and also have more opportunities to, you know, engage with conservation and have that be, I mean, that's from a personal perspective, from somebody who makes films as an ecologist and, you know, somebody in both the outdoor and hunting industry, you know, I think there just seems to be more value placed on conservation from a from a brand perspective, from a community perspective. I mean, you can walk through an outdoor trade show or a hunting trade show, and and you know, talking about conservation is probably not the coolest conversation in the room. You know, <laughs> it's probably the guy who yeah. climbed El Cap and the guy who had some incredible hunt, and you know, some incredible successful hunt that's filling up the auditoriums for the different seminars or whatever. But, you know, I'd argue that, yeah, to your point, like we hunters and and people who recreate both need healthy ecosystems to do what they do. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're somebody who goes to Yosemite to get a picture, you know, of a waterfall, you need snowpack and cold winters to have water filling those waterfalls that, you know, st- a global stewardship is something that helps that, you know, hunters, if you want a big bull elk, you need a healthy ecosystem to support that bull elk. Um, so, yeah, I think there are those kind of historical preconceived notions that, that have maintained the divide. And, you know, my, yeah, like I said, my kind of mission is to help people realize that there's actually a lot of common ground. Yeah, and I, I mean, there totally is. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of the leaders in the outdoor space, and you know, I think maybe they, I thought, well, they, you know, they obviously know I'm a hunter, so maybe they cringe at even talking to me. And that's not the case at all, ever. They just, you know, they need a little bit more knowledge from the angle we're coming from and vice versa. Just a little bit more. I mean, we're not that far off, and I think the worst thing that could happen is for hunters to be painted as people who don't care about the environment because i find that most of the time not to be true because and and sure you could bring up trophy hunting or in some negative connotation and talk about how 
some hunters are hunting for ego or hunting for their own personal vanity, sure, that's fine. There surely are some people doing that. But there's a lot of campers who litter. So I wouldn't paint all campers as litterers just the same as I wouldn't paint all hunters as trophy hunters or whatever negative connotation we would we would call it. So I, I certainly think the outdoor space sometimes is guilty of that. And then I think the hunting space is guilty of of thinking, hey, here's a bunch of left-leaning greenies that don't don't think the way we think, which that's not true either. I think there's there's le- less truth in those two ideas than I think either side would want to admit. But uh, it's close, man. And and guys like yourself are key in, in bringing it together. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point. I mean... It, there's people are always drawn to one end of the spectrum, right? This group of people is bad. This group of people is good. And the way I think about hunting, recreation, politics, anything, it's always a spectrum of best and could be better. There's always the bad apples that that you know hold up the the the, the bottom of the spectrum. But yeah, I'd argue there's just as many hunters that could do a better job as there are outdoor. Uh, you know, recreators who could do a better job, you know? And yeah. I think we just see, I think we, as, you know, as people, you know, with the platform in the industry and, and with peers and friends who have platforms and we work with brands that have platforms, you know, I think if we c- create and, and place value in those best examples, those stewards, those people who do what they do in a mindful way, and aren't going about their business trying to propagate the divide, but rather do what's right, then I think we can move the needle towards that middle ground while celebrating people who aren't getting on the horn just to point fingers and, you know, call people names. I mean, some of my best friends are hunters who hunt things that I might not hunt, but I don't judge them on a personal level. That's just, it doesn't, 
it's just something I'm not interested in doing. You know, I mean, I had a friend the other day ask me if I wanted to go bear hunting this spring, and I was like, I'll go with you, but I, I'd probably just bring my camera. And, and and that's not, you know, that wasn't a reflection of me judging that person for wanting to go do that. You know, the, the bears that they were talking about hunting are, from what I understand, a very well-managed population that's doing fine. It's just like a personal thing, and that's not, you know, I think it's so easy for somebody to say, like, you're a bad person for doing this, or you do that because you hang out with these people. It's like, I mean, I'm a UC Berkeley-trained, (laughs) California-born ecologist who lives in Montana, you know, who is working with the hunting brand Sitka on conservation as an advisor. Like, I'm a walking contradiction, but I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to help people talk about conservation and wildlife and ecology because they care about it and that's it yeah well and i think that's where a lot of your value comes into to, to everyone that hunts is is we you know there's echo chambers and there's bubbles that we live in and there's you know group think and, and a lot of that happens on all sides right you kind of get polarized and you get to get to everybody living in a place where everybody agrees with the way you think and then life becomes easy and then you push back anybody that that starts to eat away at your ideologies that you've formed with a group of people, you know, when somebody like you comes along and says, I hunt, I like to hunt, but I'm also a scientist and an ecologist and a biologist. And I'm from, I studied at UC Berkeley and I'm a California native. There's, there's a lot in there that, that doesn't seem to match up, but, um, the overarching point is that you care and you care from, from, a pragmatic level, not from from some ginned up hashtag level that just trying to make people think that you're altruistic. You truly, you, know, you truly work that way. So I think that's a good example of of why all those things can come together. Yeah, and it's you know it's been a uh, since moving to Montana. It's it's you know I've I've learned a lot. I've I've had to you know study topics that I hadn't thought a lot about, and and you know one of them that keeps popping up because it's so controversial is like wolves and grizzly bears. And there's all these perspectives and papers and voices and fears and prejudices, you know, the list goes on. And and what I keep coming back to after talking with biologists who work for the state, you know, decades of experience, reading science papers, reading op-eds, emailing people on the West coast, talking to locals it's it it all exists on a spectrum you know there there's yeah. there's populations that are doing really well that you know populations of of bears and wolves that are doing well there's populations of bears and wolves that are predisposed to conflict with humans and there's populations of bears and wolves that probably see a few humans a year or in their entire life so again we're talking about you know you see the headlines and it's like wolves in montana or bears in the greater yellowstone i mean idaho is very different than wyoming wyoming's very different than montana and all the little pockets where these animals exist are all very different. Yeah. And the individuals well, you are talk different. To, yeah, you talk to the rancher in Idaho who has wolves killing all the elk, and you kill them all, kill every wolf in the lower 48. And you talk to an area where they barely ever see a wolf, but they know they're there, and they're not. there's no tangible difference between the way they were and the way they are. They may have a different opinion, but you know, I, I hear in the hunting circles most times, kill all wolves. And even even coyotes kill all coyotes. I hear that a whole ton. I'm not I'm not sure just the 
pragmatician in me allows would allow that, and I'm sure the ecologist in you would not allow that type of thinking because it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and the model, the North American model, doesn't allow that. I mean, we're not, we're not. America is not pouring money into a wholesale extirpation of these animals. You know, it's not that legally that can't happen. So for even somebody to say, let's kill them all, I mean, that's not possible. So it's, you know, there's yeah. no point in even talking about it because it's not going to happen. Well, at the same point, they're like, let's protect them all and kill none of them, you know. But, yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, and people talk about protecting all or killing all. And, and, and again, like people will tell you whether they love or hate wolves is that packs are different. You know, there's packs have personalities. Wolves have personalities. There are some that are predisposed to certain things and some that are predisposed to other things. You know, they're just like eagles can be a specialist in eating, you know, rabbits or fish, you know, same with red-tailed hawks. Like packs and these these different animals and, and, and populations have tendencies. So I think that's like a great place to start talking. It's like, okay, cool. Well, when we look at these ecosystems, where is the potential for conflict where management might accomplish goal a b and c you know if there is a place of conflict like we should look at solutions across the spectrum you know are there five solutions what are the most pragmatic three and it doesn't have to be this to kill or not to kill to save or not to save you know and and also if, if you think about these populations whether it's elk or wolves or songbirds Again, we need to think about these populations on the order of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You know, they might be fine and well today, increasing or declining today, but there could be a fire like there was in Yellowstone in the 80s that burned. It's the biggest fire on record. You know, that happens and it changes the ecosystem. It changes the elk population. It changes the way predators interact with one another and how they prey on, you know, prey animals. Um, So it's not just, you know... I think people oversimplify wildlife management to a detriment. You know, they think it's just like you do one thing and you get one kind of, uh, you know, one effect, you know, but really it's you do one thing, 20 things happen, and maybe you only can see two of those things. And the other, you know, the others are, are muddled and confused by all the different variables in an ecosystem, you know. Elevation, temperature, rainfall, snowpack, uh, you know, whatever it might be. It could be a pine beetle infestation that, you know, takes the, the, you know, the pine seeds out of the bear's, you know, f- food availability. And that changes the way bears engage with young elk. It's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make it all the more amazing to you that our, mo- like, the, the, you know, the model of conservation wasn't a thing until the 80s, as I learned from Mah- Shane Mahoney? But does it make it all the more amazing to you that we took this model, this idea of how we would interact with animals as hunters, applied it across the board, and it generally worked for a bunch of different species in a bunch of different areas? I mean, is that just generally people caring about wildlife across the board is going to always have a good effect, or is it just just a really good system, or am I just a am I engaging in groupthink like that? It's so great, uh, but I'm, I just <laughs> know that across all these you know wildlife species there was success turkeys elk ducks deer so many they they interact with the natural world so differently and in such 
different environments that it's crazy that they all kind of uh, improved the way they did. Yeah, you know, I think it's, I think the success that the North American model has had in, in since its inception isn't just a reflection of the success from a wildlife perspective. The success that that we've had in the United States is a reflection of society deciding that they weren't going to let pollution continue. They weren't going to let dams continue. They weren't going to let blind deforestation continue. They weren't going to let DDT continue. You know, I think the success of elk or the success of bighorn sheep or, or any kind of charismatic megafauna that we use as a metric for success in the wildlife space, success is a reflection of all the agencies, management agencies working towards a goal of protecting and preserving our public lands and these natural resources that we rely on, whether it's clean air, clean water, healthy forests, healthy wildlife. And I think society at large, you know, has decided that we want waterfowl, we want songbirds, we want these different things to exist. And it's not just one agency saying like, oh, we're going to, let's prevent, you know, elk from going extinct. And let's do that. You know, they're here because all these other players have been at the table putting their time and energy into their, their little battles. But the, the end goal, the end victory is this holistic protection of, of, of America, you know? And I mean, if you read Thoreau's writings about walking the East coast, he was, you know, if you read his journal entries, he was talking about how disappointed he was to the degree at which the East Coast had been degraded. You know, the swans weren't as abundant as they were 50 years before. The waterfowl weren't as abundant. You know, and that was in the 1800s. So, I mean, we have centuries of of moving the needle in the right direction. You know, whether that was women deciding they weren't going to wear egret feathers in their hats and Teddy Roosevelt hearing their plea and protecting shorebirds in Florida, you know, way back when. I mean, it's been all these little initiatives that have, I think, predisposed these different agencies to to succeed. You know, it's been yeah. a societal thing. You know, things yeah. generally succeed when the society decides that that's the move. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, you know, and maybe I'm not prepared. Uh, educated enough to make a, a statement like this, but I, I would argue that the ivory situation and the rhino situation, the elephant situation is such a challenging one because there are so many people pushing the needle in different directions. Yeah. You know, whether it's, uh, yeah. So I just think there's a lot well, of things. Yeah. You're, what you're saying is there's no agreed upon value system. There's no, yeah, there's, there's a no lot of like, yeah, we conflict. all care about these elephants. Half the side just wants to kill them all for their tusks. The other half wants to save them. In this country, yeah. we have 100%. 100% people agree that elk should always be around. There's never any. It, there's no doubt in that. Exactly, yeah. And I think, you know, we can all agree we don't want our rivers burning like they did in the 50s. I forget the name of the river, but there was that famous example that inspired the Clean Water Act. Um, I think the river was in Ohio, and it literally caught on fire. And the United States was like, Wow. We have major rivers in the United States that are literally catching on fire. We should prevent pollution. You know, we should maintain healthy and clean waterways. Yeah. Um, obviously, pollution is something. It, yeah. that, and there's no so, and 
there's no it, it, in Africa. Of course, is a is a continent, not a country. But in countries in Africa, there isn't that same idea. There isn't that same like all these things are dying. It's up to us to save them, just because they they got other stuff to worry about. <laughs> Economically struggling, um, there are a lot of it's it's an impoverished nation, so they just don't it's corrupt in a lot of places down there. So that's way oversimplifying a very complicated conversation. But that is to say, there just isn't there isn't the spotlight like we've shown the spotlight. Yeah, I t- I, I totally agree, and I, you know I think. I think public perception is another thing that that polarizes these issues, you know. And and two things that come to mind is, you know, Earth Day. People are always saying, let's plant trees. There's a great story taking place in Scotland where communities are being paid to cut down pine tree plantations that were planted to build ships in the 19 and 1800s because the peat bogs that are... used to exist throughout Scotland are better at sequestering carbon than trees. So if you actually want to have an effect on climate, some of the best things you can do there are cut down these pine plantations and return them to peat bogs. In America, people say, let's plant trees. In a lot of places, there's more trees than there ever have been, and actually our most imperiled ecosystems are sagebrush communities and perennial bunchgrass communities. So what I tell brands is like, don't do a story about planting trees. Go do a story about some guy who's planting, or some gal who's planting bunch grasses in the Great Plains. You know, that's going to do more for the ecosystem. That's going to do more for water retention and 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 kind of overall health than planting a tree in a lot of places. Yeah, that's happening in all over our in politics and culture. Like, everybody are looking for the feel-good, simple, easy-to-digest action, right? That That's so, so then they can call themselves whatever they want to be. You know, if I want to be an environmentalist, I'm going to go plant a tree and hashtag it Earth Day. And now I'm an environmentalist. Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. really? <laughs> if I'm a, if I want to be an activist, I go and I fill out my basic information into an online form that, that votes in some kind of protest in a, um, in such a way that a million of us have done that simple act. And now I'm an activist. Like the, you know, it's it's not the doing; it's the acting. Right. Yeah, and and acting in a in a, from an informed place because. You know, a story that comes to mind is a, f- a friend of mine is a. Uh, He's part of a big expedition in 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 Africa, um, in Angola. It's a National Geographic backed expedition uh, to protect the Okavango Delta, and it's an incredible story and it's incredible uh, what they've accomplished. You know, helping to protect this this great watershed. and And he told me about coming across some poachers who had killed an elephant, and he walked up and was kind of just obviously the scene was. Uh, it was a sad one. It was troubling to see. And I asked him, I said, you know, what was that like to come across people doing that? And he said, their response was, I have to feed my family. I have no other option. I realize that killing this animal is illegal. I, I realize it takes ecotourism dollars, you know, away from the future. Uh, you know, it has all these negative impacts, but, you know, I need to put food in my kids' bellies. And it's easy for somebody from America to make a statement about that. And yes, you know, I think we can all agree that elephants need to be protected, you know, but I think the reason I bring it up is that it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. There's a lot of drivers influencing the reality on the ground. And and those drivers vary dramatically between countries and probably regions within those countries. 
Uh, and I think, again, when we talk about wildlife in America, you know, the southeast is very different than Texas, and Texas is very different than California, and California is very different than Montana. Um, so moving away from those those broad assumption, assumptions and whether it's painting hunters as bad or good or recre- you know, people in the recreation space as bad or good, it's... I think it's just best to promote the best examples, and if there's a complicated issue like wolves, to just say it's complicated, and I don't need yeah. to give you a yes or a no. Yeah, let's you have a conversation. Gonna... Yeah, absolutely. And I, anybody, I mean, you think if you're anti this or that, like being anti is a very complicated thing. That's <laughs> yeah. really simple. We've simplified it into like this easy to easy to codify. Like I'm anti this, so are you really? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like you're, you, I'm anti-milk. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> you can't just be anti-something without having thought it through. And I always say that to, to people that are self-proclaimed anti-hunters. They say, like, look, man, if you if you were impoverished and starving and the only way that you could live is to shoot a deer, I promise you, I promise you, unless you're an idiot, you would shoot that deer all day long and <laughs> drag it off into the bushes and cut it up and eat it to survive. You just happen to live in a soft version of our human existence, whereas you can pick whether you want to eat a piece of lettuce or an orange or a piece of meat because it's all in a nice air-conditioned building in a maze that you walk through and pick what you want and put it in a in a basket. Like That's the only reason that really, to me, that humans have evolved into either vegetarians or it's selective you're selecting what uh, what what you want to eat based on emotionality and virtue signaling and all those types of things in a lot in a lot of cases surely there's people that eat vegetables only because of health reasons i'm cool with that but you gotta you gotta remember that there's especially in africa like you said there's people that just do not have options they have one option it kill to eat or die that's that's their the scenario that they live in yeah and i think your point about anti hunters or non hunters or or whatever people who are anti something you know one of the things that i like to bring up is you can be a a vegan and and say that because i you know shot an elk bow hunting last year that i'm bad or or whatever your kind of uh, issues with that, you know, my response is, okay, well, you're vegan and you have a shirt that's probably not organic, probably made out of cotton, drive a car, might be a Prius, but you have a a really toxic battery in that Prius. Uh, You have petroleum-based tires, plastic all over the thing. You probably eat strawberries. A lot of strawberries are super heavy, require a lot of pesticides. Probably eat bananas. Those are wrapped in plastic. Um, generally they fill creeks and rivers in Central and South America. If you've been there, you'd have seen it. They go into the river. They are swallowed by turtles and kill tons of turtles. And, you know, the list goes on. And I think it's not a, an attempt to say you're bad, I'm better, but it's the worst thing we ever did for the planet was when we were born. You know, I mean, it's just a too many people on earth situation and everybody has an an impact, whether you're hunting a deer or eating the strawberry, you know, something is dying because of that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, that's it. Ma- something is dying part. You wake up, like we're designed, we were designed a certain way to function in this in this natural world. Like we, you wake up and you start to consume things immediately. You breathe air. You blow out 
carbon. Like you, you're consuming. You're walking around. Every footstep you make has an impact. Every road you drive on, every car you get in has an impact. And there's no way. It's some form of of strange kind of insanity to think that that your lessening one your chosen version of lessening that impact is more altruistic than than someone else, or somehow that you can you find yourself um, with no guilt based on your humanity i mean there isn't i mean if you really think about it that that's what humanity would be based on just the guilt of having to live as a consumptive being and that's what we are and so i'm not am i guilty about that yeah yeah sure at some level but i find it's a better way to function if you just dive into your consumptive nature and try to figure the damn thing out because i certainly went from being a hunter to really wanting to garden to really wanting to have chickens uh (laughs) not the other way around I was, right. I was like, well, hunting is, is a great way to consume meat. What about, what about, can I do that in the same way with all the other stuff? And and I've evolved that way. And I imagine a lot of people, and maybe a lot of people you know, are evolving the opposite way. They garden and have chickens and realize that hunting might also be uh, akin to what they're doing in their backyard. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I think, I think the, the, the answer there is just that, the world would be a better place if people were just a little bit more thoughtful, you know, and really kind of like paused and said, okay, these are the choices I've made. This is how I've chosen to live my life. Vegan, non-hunter, hunter, farmer, whatever you want to do. And I think just thinking about those choices and the impacts of those choices is where society needs to go because a lot of people don't think about them. And that's where we get the polarizing, uh, preconceived notions. I think that's where we propagate divide. I think that's where we don't work together. I think that's where we create enemies. And I think the key is just saying, okay, choose whatever you want to do. Don't impose that on other people, but just think about why you do what you do and how that helps the end game of of conservation or stewardship or or whatever your mission is. And I think that's that's just the beautiful part, right? That we're having this conversation is the beautiful part that it is that complex. And it does, you can talk for a couple hours on just one little aspect of it and it can all be worthwhile. There's no way to boil this damn thing down. You can't do it. If you trying to do it, uh, is an exercise in just insanity. There's no way. I mean, as you said, there's how many ecosystems in Bozeman, Montana are working right now to, create that environment and have it thrive you couldn't list them all all the different species that are that are out there cohabitating and and working with us in some way yeah and i think the hunting bit you know has been has been really eye-opening a lot of people that i grew up with and and you know consider my close circle don't hunt you know i was probably the only kid in my high school that hunted growing up and to to bring my fiance, uh, she, you know, her, she's an artist. Her name's Rachel Pohl. She she didn't grow up in a hunting family, and we went. She came with me almost every day this fall, and I think she realized not only what hunting's about that it's that it's this really challenging, exciting immersion in an ecosystem, but that sometimes, some years, you succeed, and to see her honor grow for these meals we're sharing with our friends and family and to see her f- develop that interest in going out this fall in hunting 
is a, is a really exciting thing. It, it's, it's a similar reverence that you get when you grow strawberries. Strawberries are hard to grow, especially out of a greenhouse. And I have yeah. been an avid gardener for a lot of my adult life. And the years that you have a good strawberry plant, I mean, you eat those strawberries with such reverence, you know, and you share them with your friends. And you're like, I only have four yeah. and you can have one of them. And I just want you to know that I, yeah. for the last week, have been out with my headlamp peeling slugs off my strawberry plant. Yeah. To and make if you sure drop a one... thing in the dirt, I'm going to kick you in the shins. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, and it's yeah. just, it's it, like, one of my proudest moments last or two years ago was I had the strawberry plant and friends would come over and I'd be like, okay, don't touch that one. Don't touch that one. But you can have this little one. You know, and <laughs> it's, it's kind of like you go yeah. on this hunt or you, you know, or you grow flowers in your garden to give to your mom. And it's just, it's such a different thing when you know what's gone into, into that, you know, whether it's yeah. food or a gift or just an experience. And it's, it's yeah. probably the, the richest part of my life is just that, that I, relationship I t- with the land. I talked about that in the earlier podcast about where I, with my wife specifically, I feel like I've perfected the way to cook an elk backstrap or an elk steak <laughs> or whatever. I have this, like, it took me years, a decade, to get it to the point where I know how to do it and I like it every time. And I would go home and I'd be working late and my wife would cook up an elk steak and, you know, the baby would be running around and she'd forget to pull it out on time. And it'd be, like, 10 degrees uh, internal temperature warmer than I would have cooked it. And I... And I find myself being a bit of an asshole about that. Like, come on, Hannah, what are you doing? Get it together. And then I think, well, what are you, why are you so upset? And that's the reason why. Because it's like, I, this thing is important to me. It's reverent to me. And it's made me a bit of a dick about, <laughs> about my backstraps. My wife and I had that conversation. Like, she's like, what is wrong with you? I said, well, look, man, I can't go, I can't go and get this again. Uh, it's going to be six or eight months before I even have the opportunity. And that, even then, it's not guaranteed. And uh, I think she understands it a little bit more now. She loves <laughs> the cook game. She loves the cook game, but she doesn't hunt. So she doesn't have the same. She loves it for the flavor and for the experience of knowing me and knowing how it died. But she doesn't have the same reverence I have for her because she doesn't, never experienced the hardship of, of going to get it. And I think it's that it's that reverence and that, that deep connection you have with the animal that that I see in scientists and stewards and people, you know, across the board who identify with the natural world. You know, one of the earliest things that inspired me as a young person was fishing with my grandmother, you know, avid fisherwoman, uh, birder, really amazing lady. And we, this was on San Francisco Bay where there's a lot of leopard sharks. Mm-hmm. And we're out fishing on this pier and this guy is catching leopard sharks and cutting their fins off and throwing them back in the water. And my grandmother, who was probably 55 or 60 at the time, he kept, this guy catches a leopard shark, probably like a four-foot leopard shark. My grandmother walks over to the guy, gets in his face, grabs the shark out of his hands, throw it, throws it back in the water, and starts giving him an earful on respecting you know, these animals and respecting wildlife. And my brother and I were really little, and I just, I, I'll never forget seeing her do that and i think it's that it's that realization that if we don't speak up for these animals in these places and think about that backstrap and that forest that supported that elk as as our obligation to speak on their behalf then by default they'll just slip away because these places don't have voices these animals don't have voices of their own so they need people like us to be out there 
making sure that they don't, you know, slip away. You know, I want my kids to hunt where I grew up hunting. And I know that if something was going to threaten that place, I would, you know, I'd be there. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. Two hunters agreeing on animal rights. What the hell kind of podcast (laughs) is this? What are we talking about? That, that, I, I as you're talking there, I was just thinking about that, too. As I, I get in these conversations, and, and you try to shape them in a way, but they go how they go. Um, and I've had more conversations doing this podcast about animal rights on a hunting podcast than I can, can think I maybe have ever had um, in any, any conversation or any community I've had. So that's one of the cool things about this um, and about what you're doing is that it's bringing to light that maybe animal rights activists and hunters are, aren't all that different, or maybe they're at some level, the damn same thing. Um, and a lot of people, so it's beautiful, man. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. And I think, you know, one of the things that I love about the hunting industry is that by default, people are, are, are stoked on wildlife which is something that I miss in the outdoor recreation space because just because you're in that space doesn't mean you love animals. So yeah, I feel, yeah, I feel absolutely. like I'm, yeah, I feel like I'm meeting a lot of people, especially in Bozeman that are, you know, uh, they're just like wildlife nerds that go about it in different ways. And I love that. And I, and it, you know, I think it, it brings up this point that I try to share with people, which is that, you can see a picture of a, of a person holding a steelhead trout, a wild steelhead. I would argue that has more of an impact on the ecosystem than killing a white-tailed deer. But we just have this affinity, this connection with the, ant, the eyes of deer and society mm-hmm. treats them one way. But a steelhead trout, which might come from an imperiled population that's in decline, that has tried so hard to just live and you drag it out of the water it gives up, which basically, which means it's almost dying. And if you look at the physiology of, of catch and release, there is an impact, whether we'd like to believe it or not. Um, talk to any fish biologist about the effects of catch and release on lipids. You know, I practice catch and release a lot. You know, nobody's perfect, but there's an impact there. Yeah. Um, and it's all about just, you know, realizing we're in it for the same reasons. Fishermen, fish, they care about waterways. They care about fish. They care about those ecosystems. We hunt, we care about these animals and these ecosystems and people who hike care about the same thing too. And, and I appreciate you and I appreciate this podcast and I appreciate, you know, what you're excited to talk about because it's an indication that there's, there's so much common ground and there's so much room for progress and there's so much, uh, collaborative energy out there that I think is just waiting to be tapped into. Yeah, I agree. And I have a very, um, I don't know how to say it, a very combative relationship with catch and release. So you're now, for bringing that up, you're now my favorite guest. Because <laughs> <laughs> I live in a world where the grip and grin photo is like this negative thing. But the grip and the catch and grip photo or the whatever, the fishing, catch and release fishing folks do is this like this celebrated thing that's okay. And I, I have not yet been able to figure out how one can wrap their mind around catch and release fishing being okay and hunting being negative. But, um, 
I think that's probably a whole nother podcast, and we're about <laughs> yeah. we're about out of time. And I don't want to I don't want to get in trouble with any of my fishing buddies because I I do love I don't you either. all. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, do, I love you I all, and I'm glad to come and grab a fly rod and come to to Montana and do it. But uh, I, I got a, I got a few problems with you people, and we'll cover that next time. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a that's a whole nother whole nother conversation. But yeah, Absolutely. I appreciate all the all the good questions and. Um, yeah, maybe we can sit down and continue some of them down the road and go for a fish ourselves. Absolutely, man. I'm all down for that. I hope to see you before too long in Bozeman. Uh, as soon as it gets hot down here in Texas, I'm going north for for something, probably fishing. So we'll get together and have that conversation while we're trying to catch trout. Sounds good. Bring a, bring some headphones and a recorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, professional. That's That's how I'm going to title this, Wildlife Nerd. Charles Post. Thanks, man. <laughs> Happy. That sounds that sounds perfect. Okay, that's it. Episode number seven in the books. Thank you to Charles Post. Great conversation. I think, among other things, I learned from Charles just we can't stereotype people we see on the street. We can't stereotype people we see in a hunting camp. There's starting to be people like Charles who don't look the part or don't have the history of the part who are in our world and their voices are important. And I think Charles might be the best example of that right now. He's got unique perspectives both in science and in cohabitation and in the natural world, ecology, biology, and has been trained by some people who have never hunted themselves. So I think that gives him a unique perspective on what we do. And the, uh, the uniqueness of his perspective is really where it's valuable. I'm not sure if uniqueness is a word or not, but that's what he is. So thanks for tuning in. Episode number seven is done. I'm done for now. And we're going to see you next week with another great guest. Until then, go to thehuntingcollective.com for articles, videos, a bunch of other stuff. The other six episodes we've done before this featuring Steve Rinella. Ryan Callahan, John Dudley, Shane Mahoney, Aubrey Marcus, and more. Check us out on iTunes. Give us a review. Please subscribe. Tell your friends to do the same. We're also on Stitcher, and we're working on some other platforms. So until the next time, thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon. Bye. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them 
Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.